Well, good morning, Calvary Chapel. Uh, as most of you have probably noticed, by now things are looking a little bit different this morning. We're throwing a few new faces up here. Uh, Pastor Sean is getting a weekend off. Um, he's definitely ready for a, a much-needed break with all the hard work that he's been doing. Uh, so for those of you I haven't met, my name's Cody Bordewijk. I'm the next generation pastor here. I kind of focus on youth ministry, uh, young adult ministry, some other odds and ends. I also teach on Wednesday night. So if you guys are enjoying kind of seeing some different people here, come check out our, our Wednesday night service. We studying uh, verse by verse through the Old Testament, same as we're doing with the New Testament here this morning. It's a good chance to see myself and Brian and Tom and um, get a dive into some portions of scripture that we don't read as often. Um, so for those of you uh, that need a Bible, you can go and raise your hand. We've got uh, the guys wandering around that uh, will be happy to give you one as, as we get started in our time of study. So we're going to be continuing this morning uh, verse by verse, through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, so 1 Corinthians is an interesting interesting book to study. It's very relevant for us today. Uh, we see the Apostle Paul write the book of 1 Corinthians uh, to the church in Corinth really to answer a lot of questions that they had about how the gospel, how their faith applied to the culture they were living in. Uh, the city of Corinth was a wealthy, influential city. It was a, a very well-known port city, a lot of commerce coming and going through there. And, um, with that uh, also came a lot of sin. It was a society that was not seeking to honor God. It was heavily under the influence of the pagan culture of that day. Uh, Corinth was known for drinking, for sexual sin, for idolatry, for various things that were just abhorrent to God and to Christians. And so we think sometimes idealistically about life in the early church, but really what we see in the book of Corinthians is that it was not that different from where we're at today, that they were living in a world that was seeking to go the opposite direction from God. And so they were having these questions on what were the practical implications of the gospel for them? How could they live that out? And what did that look like? in a culture that was just going the opposite direction as fast as it could. And so we see in First and Second Corinthians how the gospel applies to the messes of everyday life. We understand the power of the gospel, that we are freed through Christ. We understand that that empowers us to live differently. But what exactly does that look like when you're in a world that doesn't know God, that doesn't love God, that doesn't live the same way that we strive to. Uh, one teacher I was looking at reviewing this um, commented that being a believer does not give us a ticket out of the fallenness of the world. That although we have been redeemed by Christ, we have been transformed by Christ, we still have to live in a fallen world. And so the questions of just what that looks like is so much of what's covered in 1 Corinthians. Today we're going to be going into chapter 8, uh, which is kind of a shift in the text, really. Uh, the book started off spending a lot of time talking about division within the church, the importance of unity, the importance of honoring Christ, of seeking him above all else. Uh, he kind of shifted from that, Paul, in the next section to talking about issues regarding sex and sexual conduct. That was such a big part of what made the believers in that time stand out from the culture around them. Not that different from where we live today. 
And so this next few chapters we'll be going into um, over the next few weeks covers issues regarding food and liberty. Uh, so how does it look for Christians to eat, to dine, to participate in feasts? And what is the importance of that liberty they have in Christ? How do you live that out in a way that glorifies God in this culture? So there's a few different themes we're going to touch on this morning. Uh, just the responsibilities of knowledge, the importance of a relationship with God, how that impacts every single area of our lives. Liberty is one that's going to be coming up again and again, that Christ has purchased us freedom, that we are free to do many things because of Christ. But sometimes we need to change that. We need to lay those things aside in order to glorify God and to show love for others. Uh, love is another topic that's going to be coming up again and again as well. Just the importance of love, even over knowledge, as we go through life. And purpose for existence. Why does God have people here? And the fact that God created us for himself, for his glory, should shape every avenue, every aspect of our lives. And so our main, main theme, our main focus point we're going to be looking at today is that we as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, need to be willing to lay aside our freedom for the good of others. And I don't mean freedom as in slavery, as in servitude. Um, I mean the things that we are free to do, that we're not bound to follow the Old Testament law. We're free in Christ. That we are free to make choices, decisions on what our preferences are, the individual ways God has created us. But there are times where we need to lay those things aside, to be willing to surrender those for the good of another people, for the, another person, for the building up of their faith. This is an important part of the Christian life. So all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the text. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And so the question Paul's addressing here, the Corinthians had, had written him about how they should deal with food that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, we understand in this culture, the Greco-Roman pagan culture, that there were many different gods they worshipped, uh, many different temples they would go to to worship. Um, and a big part of this worship, uh, much as it was for the Jews in the Old Testament, was sacrificing animals to these various gods. That that was part of what they did, that was their regular routine. And a lot of what would happen in this time is the animal would be sacrificed, portions of it would be um, burned on their altar to whatever god it may have been. And then what was left would be taken by the people, would be sold in the markets, um, something along those lines. And so for the people of Corinth, uh, this was a great way, this was like their discount food market. You know, do you want to go pay full price for a live animal, have to slaughter it yourself and deal with that? Or do you go and find, you know, hey, here's the, the stuff that's, you know, about to get past its best by date. This was sacrificed to an idol. You can get a better deal on this, get more food, feed your family, take care of them, just because part of this animal had been burned as an offering to 
a pagan god. And so they were asking Paul what to do about this, that um, some people felt uneasy about this, that there was not necessarily a consensus on what they should do. And so this is really what they're wondering. Is this okay? Is it sinful because it was sacrificed to a pagan god? Does it not matter? Is it just a good way to get cheap food? Um, and this was really something that, that was driving a lot of questions for the people of Corinth. And so Paul, again, addresses this topic. Uh, he kind of, here in verse 1 and in verse 4 when we get there in a little bit, kind of starts going off in a little bit different direction. So he starts off concerning things sacrificed to idols. And then he talks about knowledge, that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And so Paul wants to lay down kind of some ground rules, some base information for the people to understand before he gets to the specifics of how to deal with this. And so the question is, when does knowledge become sin? That food sacrifice to idols is in many ways an issue of knowledge and of love. And he talks about knowledge making arrogant, but love edifying. And this is a verse that I think there's some confusion about what exactly that looks like. Is Paul downplaying the value of knowledge? Is he saying knowledge is not important, that we only need love? Not exactly. But there is a lot of importance to knowing the proper place for each. Uh, we think of what Jesus listed as the second greatest commandment from the Old Testament, to love your neighbor as yourself. That knowledge can become sinful, can become a problem, when it leads you to act not in love, to not treat others with love. Um, I think a great example of this, uh, most of us have had some experience of this, um, whether that be in, in school, in college, um, you, you meet a teacher, a professor, who has a lot of knowledge, but not necessarily a lot of love. Maybe they have love for the subject they teach, but do they have love for people? Um, I can think of a few specific examples in my own life, especially from college. It seems that uh, college professors, you know, a lot of them kind of get dialed in on what they're passionate about, and that's just the entire world to them, um, whether that be math, history, um, whatever science level they're teaching. Um, that they're not really there for the students. They're not really there to help people learn. They're just there because they love the subject. And you see that played out. There's such a stark contrast between people teaching that way and people teaching because they care about their students. They care about their own well-being, about the way their students are growing as people. Um, so just a great example of knowledge and love, that both are necessary, but love needs to guide that knowledge. And we also see here just the risks of knowledge, that knowledge, it says, makes arrogant, uh, that all of us know things at some level. We all have some type of knowledge. And really, in an area where you do have great knowledge, there's a higher risk for arrogance, for being willing to kind of push people aside and drive forward with what you know, which may be true, but if you're willing to hurt others to pursue that because of that arrogance, that is sinful. And so really, knowledge without wisdom, knowledge without compassion, knowledge without love 
can do a lot of damage, that can be a great harm and a detriment to people because of the risks that come with that. And so Paul contrasts knowledge, these are all the risks of knowledge, with love. He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And that's really the main goal we should have as believers living in communion with one another, uh, that we're seeking to edify one another, and that we can have this knowledge and that can help us in many ways. But if we have love, that's so much more beneficial, that we can be seeking the good of those around us, to edify them, to build them up in the Lord, to help grow their faith, help them become more and more confident and more and more in love with Christ. And love is just so vital to the Christian faith. Uh, We think about, again, this contrast too, that knowledge makes arrogant, and that knowledge aids the person who possesses it, but it also has that risk of puffing them up, of making them proud. Love, on the other hand, is outward focused, that love builds up those around the individual, that if I know something, that helps me, but if I love, that helps all of you. So in verse 2, he continues to talk about knowledge. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. How's that for kind of a confusing tongue twister there? Um, But again, just the risks of knowledge. Uh, I think about uh, my own life. So um, I spend a lot of time, you know, working here at the church with young people, with teenagers, with preteens. Um, I've done a fair bit of work with that, Um, and not just to throw them under the bus, this is very true for myself as well, but I think back to that phase of my life, to, you know, um, junior high, early high school, teen, preteen years, I knew everything. I mean, everything. If there was a problem in the world, I could fix it when I was 14. Um, You know, my parents were so dumb, I don't, they got a lot smarter since then, fortunately, but, um, you know, but I... I just, you know, at that phase of life, you think you have all the answers usually. You know, there may be some exceptions. I'm not again, throwing everyone under the bus. But that knowledge just leads to so much arrogance. And it's not even a great deal of knowledge. If anyone supposes that he knows anything. I was supposing I knew everything. Which really meant that I didn't know anything. He has not yet known as he ought to know. That if you think you have knowledge, if you think you have the answers, you're really missing so much of the big picture. Um, I feel like that's so much of you know, what adult life is, moving out of adolescence and forward with that. It's learning how much you don't know. But I feel like uh, every year I just come away just realizing, man, there's a lot I still don't understand. There's a lot I don't know. Um, so knowledge, just again, if, if you think you have it, you might want to take a step back and reevaluate things. Is you know, this true? Or am I maybe being a little arrogant, thinking I'm a little farther ahead than I really am? And the great contrast with that, again, if you think you possess knowledge, you don't know what you're supposed to know, what you should know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. What a great contrast that is for us. That we can think we know things or we can love God and God will know us. 
And that makes such a great difference. Again, that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That if anyone loves God, God knows that person. And this is just so powerful, that if we love God, that God knows us. It's not that we have to make the effort even, that God has made a way that he can know us, that he steps out of his role as creator, that he comes down to us to make a way for us to be with him, to know us. Um, And it's not just knowing about God. This isn't just, again, a knowledge, that this is being known by God. This is a relationship with God. This shapes and redirects everything else we do. This is the gospel, really, that God knows people. And that's much more important, much more valuable, much more useful than any knowledge any learning we could possess. Verse 4. He moves back, kind of, again, to laying some more groundwork to answer this question. So, knowledge and love, relationship with God. The next part, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And the one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so food sacrificed to idols, it's an issue of knowledge and of love for these people, It's an issue of worship and of purpose. What is shaping their decisions? He says that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. So he's kind of laying the groundwork to answer this question. So food is sacrificed to idols. Is that bad? Is eating it sinful? Doesn't matter. Paul's pointing out there are no idols. That this worship they're doing is to gods that do not exist. Um, that they know that there's not an idol because of their faith in God. Um, we think about just some various examples of this in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah talks about the foolishness of idolatry, that a man chops down a tree and he uses part of it to burn to heat his home. And the other part he makes an idol and worships it. That's just ludicrous that there's no power to this. And Paul will point out later in the book that there is uh, some demonic influence with the idolatry that they were committing. But really, at the end of the day, they're worshiping something that did not exist. So that's the big part of the answer, that food sacrificed to an idol is sacrificed to something that is not there, that there is only one God, no matter where they're at, no matter what they're doing. And in verse 5, he kind of carries that argument a little further. He moves into a hypothetical point. Even if there are so-called gods, that even if there were other gods, there aren't, but if there were in heaven or on earth, in the same way that there are many gods and many lords, he's speaking of just the different rulers throughout the nations, uh, the different lords and people there, that even if um, worship 
and the realm of the divine was kind of like the Greco-Roman religion imagined it. There were all these different gods covering all these different regions and um, you had to pray to the right god for the right place you were at or the god that had power over this certain aspect of life. Even if that was true, he says in verse 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all are all things, and we exist for him. So even if there were other gods, even if the world was divided that way, that for us who trust in God, who believe in God, there is only one God. And this would have been so familiar to any of the the readers of this letter that had a Jewish background. This was such an important part of what they learned through the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, which they would um, have had to memorize when they were young, says that there is one God, that the Lord is one. They need to worship him wholeheartedly. We also see in this one the importance of God's role as the creator, that God is the one God there to worship, that he created everything that is, all that exists. I think that's just such a great reminder. We see that throughout the scriptures, that God is called to be worthy of worship because he is the creator, because he made the world, because he exercises complete and absolute sovereign control over it, and it was created for his glory. And I think uh, it's just a great reminder of the risks of any belief system, anything that draws us away from God's role as creator, that God made the world, that the world is his, And we have to worship God because of that. And not only did God create earth, but it says that we exist for him. That we don't have to wonder what our purpose is in life. Why God put us here. Why God placed us where we're at in this specific geographical location at this point in time that we exist for God, that that is our purpose here in life, that our job is to glorify God with every aspect of everything we do, that every area of our lives is to be submitted to him for his glory, that that is why we even exist. Our very existence is for God and for his glory. In the second part of verse 6, So not only is there one God, it says, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so again, this just reminds us of the importance of the sacrifice of Christ and his role in creation as part of the divine trinity. Uh, Such a a complicated yet simple concept that uh, there is one God, there are different parts of that, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that Christ existed in eternity past and was working alongside the Father in creation. That all things were created through him, it tells us in John chapter 1. And that we exist through him. So we exist individually through Christ. We also exist as believers. We are saved by the sacrifice of Christ. That God has created us. God has created the world. We exist for him. And that Christ has redeemed us. And so we live because of him.
And so that's, again, another piece of this question. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? Well, first off, our relationship with God trumps anything you could know. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols? There is no God but one, and we exist for that God. That that needs to shape all of our decisions. Uh, That as we wrestle with the difficult questions of life, we need to remember our purpose for existence is for God and for his glory. That should shape all of the questions that we are seeking, all the answers we look to, that we can know that our purpose drives all of these things. So now, Paul gets down kind of to actually answering the questions. They ask him, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? And he kind of goes off on a tangent here, kind of on a tangent here, you know, giving some background information. And so now he's really going to get into okay, what do you actually do now? So starting in verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, knowledge that there's only one God, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. For food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So food sacrifice to idols is also an issue of liberty and love. And so we talked about that a little bit before. When does our liberty become sin? That Christ has purchased our freedom, that we're free to do many things. But there are times where choosing that freedom can lead us to sin against another person. That there's decisions we face that are not inherently right or wrong, but we need to base those decisions on how it impacts the believers around us, the other people in our lives. I think of an illustration for this. Um, So I grew up in a family that loves music. Uh, my grandfather was a big music fan, had a massive record collection and huge speakers that were like this tall in his basement. And um, I remember hanging out with him and he used to love listening to old rock and roll. And uh, my dad was self-employed. I worked with him, um, junior high, high school, all, all summers and weekends and all that. And, um, you know, we always had the radio playing. We were driving to the job site and headed up on the job site and listening to music. And um, so it was a big part of my upbringing. And uh, so I, uh, I'm, I'm coming out of it now, uh, but I went through a, a significant phase of my life where I was kind of a rock and roll snob. That, uh, you know, there, were, you know there, was, there was good rock music, and then there was kind of just, yeah, that's, that's kind of crass, not cool, it's, it's not artistic, you know, whatever it may be. I'm not a musician. I don't have any talent in that area. All I bring is opinions. But <laughs> this, is, uh, this is something, you know, that I, I enjoy. And... Um, so I was in grad school, and we went on a, a study trip. And my roommate uh, was another believer, 
um, a little bit older than I was, um, but we shared a room for, I think, 10 days, something like that, as we were traveling, you know, various places. Um, and uh, I was talking with him, you know, just getting to know him a little bit. And um, He was asking what kind of music I listened to, you know, so we talked a little bit about that. And, um, you know, he had a very different past than I did. So I grew up, you know, a family that loved music, but a family that loved God even more. Uh, my parents were, you know, very, very, you know, focused in helping us to love God, to obey God, and to understand, you know, these freedoms, but also love for other people. Uh, my roommate on this trip, on the other hand, so he grew up um, apart from God. Now, he had a, a pretty rough early adulthood. He spent a lot of time um, drinking drugs, partying, that whole scene. And so he was familiar with a lot of the same music I liked, but for him, it brought up completely different memories. Uh, that, you know, he would, he would hear all this old rock music, and that would remind him of, you know, being high, of being at parties, of, you know, broken relationships and different things. And, um, so for him, he just, he couldn't be around this as much, because it was just, it was hard for him. It reminded him of the sins and the difficulties of his past. For me, this brought up, you know, good memories of my family and things I've enjoyed doing. And so in this situation, would it have been very kind, very considerate of me? You know, he maybe leaves and goes, something come, goes to do something and comes back, and I just got Led Zeppelin blaring in our hotel room or something. Maybe not the nicest thing to do. You know, that this is an area where, was it wrong for me to do that? Probably not on, you know, just a me standpoint. But when I take him and his faith into account, yeah, that would have been sinful to exercise that freedom and to just really hurt him, you know, in that moment. Potentially cause him to stumble. So verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. Not everyone understands the non-existence of these idols. Uh, that Paul's talking specifically about people who have recently come out of this idolatry. That for people that have lived that lifestyle of paganism, of worship apart from God, of living for yourself and your own desires, and then come to know Christ, that they're going to see a lot of these things differently, that this is going to be a more difficult transition for them, a more difficult time to understand just where to draw those lines of right and wrong, um, that the believer has to be cautious in how these things interact with those around them. And so, these ones, especially who'd come recently to faith, it says if they eat this food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. That this wasn't something that was inherently wrong, but they just couldn't feel good about it because not that long ago, they were in these temples. They were worshiping these idols that the sacrifices were made to. And they probably remember seeing these animals and this meat being sacrificed and it reminds them of that false worship, of that life apart from God. And so they just can't get comfortable with that. That was a difficult thing for them to do. And again, it was not necessarily wrong, but it was something that just their conscience, their faith, couldn't allow them to feel good about. Uh, that that's why it was difficult for them. And so in verse 8, Paul points out that food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. 
that the issue here is not what you're consuming. That it doesn't matter whether or not you choose to eat this food or not. That God is not concerned. That it doesn't make you more holy to abstain in this case. It doesn't make you less holy to eat. That's not the issue. But verse 9 says to take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, it's such an important verse that, again, we have freedom in Christ, that the people in Corinth had freedom in Christ to eat this meat, to live their lives, to do many different things and make decisions, but they have to be careful that it didn't become a stumbling block to those around them who were weaker in their faith, who hadn't been walking with Christ as long, who didn't understand as fully what that looked like. And that applies just as much to us here today, that we have to be careful that our liberty does not become a stumbling block to those around us, that we have to allow God and his spirit to guide us through those decisions. We have to take the faith of other people into consideration when we're confronted with things like this. That there are many things we can choose to do that are not inherently right or wrong, but the way we do them, the impact they have on those around us can make them right or wrong, can make them sinful or not. Because it's important for us to look at the faith of others, to seek to edify others. And so that liberty to choose, liberty in Christ, is such a great gift, but it can cause others to stumble. And verse 10 elaborates a little bit on what that looks like. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So he's saying, for some of these people, you know, if you even go to this temple and you're not taking part in worship, but yeah, they've got some food there, so you get some of it. um, If one of these weaker brothers, newer to the faith, sees you there in this temple, how confusing is that going to be for them? That they're going to come in and see this person who's more mature in their faith, who's been with the Lord longer, who lives a life devoted to Christ, but then they see him here in this pagan temple eating, you know, these sacrifices. And they think, well, I don't feel good about it, but he's doing it, so maybe I should too. Um, How damaging could that be for this person to question their faith, to question their conscience, and be driven to, to do things that they don't feel should be done by a believer? Um, again, they're not doing anything inherently wrong, but just causing this person to act against their conscience. Uh, that's not helpful. And again, the, the person with the strong conscience, the believer who's been walking with the Lord longer, usually they're not as bothered by these types of things. They understand what that looks like, that God has called them, uh, that God has purchased their freedom, he's paid for their sins, and they can live in that freedom. Uh, but it takes some time for people to, to come to terms with that, to settle into that, and to know and understand when to act and when to not. And this could really even lead to further sin, that if this person sees what the stronger believer is doing, sees them um, taking part in this, and doesn't fully understand what's going on, that could lead to confusion as well. 
oh, well, maybe it's okay if I, you know, worship God and worship this other God. Uh, maybe it's okay if I make sacrifices to this other God. You know, they might not fully understand what was going on there. So there's a great deal of risk to this that the stronger person probably didn't even take into consideration. Verse 11 says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And this is really the nitty-gritty of where knowledge can get us in trouble. Um, That this person had knowledge. They knew they were free to do this in Christ. But they ruined this other person. That uh, knowledge can harm the weak when it's not guided by love. Um, And just a reminder, Paul gives such a great reminder here of the importance of this. That through this knowledge, not motivated by love, that this brother in Christ, this person that Jesus died for, is harmed. That by careless actions, by prioritizing their own freedom over love for other people, they're bringing harm to a person that Jesus died for. Now, this is really devaluing the work of Christ, but not showing that proper care and love to fellow believers um, just really lowers in our minds the value of Jesus and his sacrifice. Now, this is such a great price that was paid for this other person, and they're willing to just push them aside to get what they wanted. Verse 12. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That acting in this way, prioritizing freedom over love and care for others, violating the conscience of another, wounds their conscience, and that is a sin against Christ. Uh, So he's really getting down to the point here, that this is not just something, "Eh, maybe you shouldn't do it. No, this is a sin against this person, and this is a sin against your God against the God who died to save you, that you are just trampling upon that and ignoring the needs of that person, the price that was paid for their redemption and for yours. That this is just really can cause a lot of harm. And Paul closes it off in verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And so Paul kind of makes it practical here now that this sin they're committing is against fellow believers, is against Christ, and that causing another person to stumble is not worth it. That he's saying, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. That it's not even worth it. I have the freedom to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That, that's okay. But in certain situations, probably shouldn't do it for the good of others. But if I'm really concerned about what's going on, that Paul is you know, really wanting to be careful, he's saying, it's, it's not even worth it. If this is what the issue is, I'm willing to give up meat entirely. I don't care if it was sacrificed to an idol, if it was slaughtered you know, right here and um, certified by the priest, that I will completely give this up for the good of other people. And again, not that 
you know, he's saying this has to be done, but this is the attitude that Paul carries into this, that he is so willing to lay aside his own rights, his own desires, and his own freedoms for the good of those around him. That food can cause another person to stumble um, in this situation, that what they're doing was not inherently right or wrong, but that if it causes somebody else to stumble, that he is willing to give it up because the faith of our fellow brothers and sisters is more important than our freedom. That keeping them from stumbling is more important than our liberties. And so in conclusion, that leaves us with some interesting things to think about. Um, Here in America, especially here in Wyoming, we love our liberties. We love our freedoms. Uh, That's why many of us live here. And these are wonderful things to have, that it's amazing that God has given us so much freedom in our faith, in our life, and in our society. But we need to be careful that we don't cling tighter to these freedoms and to these liberties than we do to our Lord and to our brothers and sisters. That love is more important than liberty. And we need to be willing to lay these things aside, to lay aside our freedoms and our liberties when love demands it. Um, We think about just so many different things within our society that can cause division, that can mislead people. Um, Things that are, you know, not right or wrong. Um, What is our our level of involvement in the political spectrum? Um, What do we do with our possessions? What type of things do we possess? How do we spend money? Uh, Just different divisive issues. Um, I think even uh, this past year or so about um, wearing masks going into stores. We have a lot of freedom to choose what we do, but we need to be making those choices based more on the people around us than we are about our own needs and desires. That it would be not loving, that it would be not showing respect and reverence for Christ if we're making those decisions based solely on what we want and what we desire. And we have these freedoms, uh, but we also are called to a higher purpose. As I was studying through this, I, I thought of Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. And I think that same concept applies to every area of our life, that how we live, we need to be careful to consider how it impacts the believers around us, if it draws them into doubt or if it draws them into worship. So be willing to lay aside your freedom for the good of others, for the glory of God, because we exist for God and for his glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. I thank you for your word, for your love, for your care. I thank you just for uh, this message, God, for this reminder that um, you have created us for a purpose, Lord, that we exist for your glory. And because of that, we need to consider those around us, Lord, that we live for something so much greater than our own desires and needs and wants. I pray that you would be with us, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we go through life. I thank you for the freedoms that you have purchased for us with the blood of your Son. And I pray that you would help us to value those but to not hold 
too tightly to them, to be willing to lay those aside in love when you call us to. Lord, I pray that um, we'd be able to just live that life of love, of respect, God, um, seeking the good of our brothers and sisters over ourselves. We ask all these things in your name.